quick introduction before our uh, prayer. We left off in Luke 13. And if you recall, we saw folks come to Jesus with the news that Pilate had mingled the blood of certain Galileans with their sacrifices. So we have the act of an evil man uh, upon those who, by all appearances, are what we would refer to as innocent. And Jesus' response to that is, unless you, plural, repent, you will all likewise perish. And he ups the ante. What about the Tower of Siloam that fell, killing 18? And again, he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So here we have a teaching of our Lord Jesus in regard to the suffering perpetuated by those who are evil and by those things that we would call an act of God. The response is not to sit in judgment of God when those things happen. Where was he? Why didn't he prevent it? Um, Why do bad things happen to good people? And so on and so forth. But to humble ourselves and repent. Similarly, toward the end of 13, then, we had the question asked, Lord, will those who are saved be few? That's at verse 22 and 23. To which then our Lord responds, strive to enter the narrow door. For many, will, many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And then again, he says, imagine yourself outside when the door is shut and you're calling to me from the darkness and I say, I do not know you. So in terms of speculations of why God allows suffering, in terms of speculations in regard to why some and not others, and are there more or few, these are all above our pay grade. Again, one of the refrains from last week is, what are you going to do with that information if you have it? And the short answer is, once you cut to the chase, you're going to sit in judgment upon God. And that's not our place. That's not our role. So Jesus effectively says, know your place, know your role, humble yourself. You worry about you, and you simply worry about getting in. And you do that by repenting, by converting, by having faith in me. That's the essence, then, of... What we've covered heretofore in Luke 13, in my estimation, is probably the best single chapter on Jesus dealing with these issues regarding the problem of God's justice, quote-unquote, whether that be earthly or eternal. And then 13 ends with this lament over Jerusalem, which in many respects is a beautiful capstone on this whole theology. So we're going to take a look at that. That'll be the new material we jump into Before we head into 14, and we're going to treat this all fairly superficially because we don't hit a parable proper. I mean, I don't know. Some folks count the lament over Jerusalem as a, as a parable. It's a little, it's a little gray. The next parable proper is in chapter 14, verse seven. Let's open with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we give thanks and praise to you for the kingdom and reign of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, for his triumph over the powers of evil, even though we see them raging all around us and apparently winning. So also they appeared to win at the crucifixion of your Son. But we know in this very act was their destruction, as he destroyed the one who has the power over death, as he won full and free forgiveness of sins for all who believe. We pray that this victory through suffering would be ours as well. 
and that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would enlarge our hearts and minds to embrace those thoughts, words, and deeds that are yours, and to perceive the world as you would have us perceive it as your beloved sons. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so at the lament of Jerus- uh, over Jerusalem, chapter 13, verse 31, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Which is kind of odd that they're playing this game. Why would they care if Herod wants to kill him? Maybe they're trying to incite him. Who knows? At 32, he responds, go and tell that fox. Now, we're, most of us here are agriculturally challenged. In one degree or another, we don't own chickens, so we don't know exactly what a fox is to chickens. Nothing but trouble. And that's what's coming next. So, you know, given I was trying to think of like how this would transfer and given the proliferance of purse dogs in our culture here, maybe, uh, maybe this would be translated as go tell, in that, that, go tell that coyote, right? Anyway, you'll see. Go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today, tomorrow, and the third day. Now, that's a very enigmatic statement. I finish my course, and the third day I finish my course, which is probably his own triumph over sin, death, and the devil via his resurrection. That's probably what he's alluding to. I mean, this is a jam-packed statement. I cast out demons. Do you think I'm afraid of Herod? I perform cures. I cure all diseases. Do you think I'm afraid of Herod? I do so today, tomorrow. That is, I do so as I please. And the third day I finish my course. I think that's an allusion to the resurrection. Even when Herod, in league with Pilate, in league with the Jews, do get around to killing me, in the th- I, I will dictate how that goes, and on the third day I will rise and finish my course. In other words, I could care less about Herod, I think is the sentiment. So, verse 33, nevertheless, I go on my way today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. (laughs) Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Of course, she has a long history of that all through the Old Testament. And there's great irony there because Jerusalem is the city of peace. You can hear Salem, peace, shalom. She's the city of peace that does nothing but murder God's prophets. And here's kind of the capstone then, I think, on this whole section that really weaves all of 13 together. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? Now, the idea of being under the wings or under the shadow of the wings is a very common refrain throughout the Old Testament Psalms, and it's this idea of being protected. And, of course, once we know the cross, we can see the outstretched wings, as it were, under which we are sheltered. So now you can see the connection between fox and hen, and the only apparent advantage that Herod has in this temporal realm, he being the fox, Christ being the hen, 
and him desiring to gather his brood. So then, not yet to the capstone, how often would I have gathered your children together? So who are the children of Jerusalem? All of the Hebrews. As a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and alas, the Father predestined you before the foundation of the world for eternal damnation, so we're all out of luck. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. And you, plural, would not. So there is ultimately, you know, we've, we've meditated on these themes of, okay, well, it's way above our pay grade why Pilate's allowed to kill, quote-unquote, innocent folks. It's way above our pay grade why a tower falls on these particular people. It's way above our pay grade, ultimately, who gets in and who doesn't, and if it's more or less or whatever. And that might lead us to think, oh, so it is, in fact, just God choosing it all, and we have no say whatsoever. And here Jesus puts the corrective capstone on that, that the Father and the Son together desire that the whole world would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But alas, you, plural, would not. Okay, behold, your house is forsaken. I think that's a fair translation. It can, it can just as easily be read, behold, your house is left unto you. And of course, we know what happens to Jerusalem seven, you know, in 70 AD, so some 40 years later. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, and again, here's where the plural makes sense of it, until you, plural, this um, great crowd along with the Pharisees. If you go back to 22, he's on his way through the towns and the villages. Everybody's around him. So you, plural, will not see me until you, plural, say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which happens ostensibly at, the, at Palm Sunday at the entrance. That's when they cry out. The second way to read that, and some do, would be to look at that eschatologically in reference to his second coming. Okay, well, I don't want to go too far in depth there. The elements that some think they see here that make it maybe a parable are the, chiefly the fox and the hen language. I don't know. You can see where it gets pretty darn gray. I treated it fairly superficially, I think with the intent of uh, moving on, but I'll stop and see if you have any questions, comments. Just, just yeah. a quick question. What is, what is Jesus' point in the last clause in verse 35? It says, you will not see me until you say, what do you think he was saying? You know, let me see if I can The study notes at the bottom say that Jesus would not visit the city again until he comes back on Palm Sunday. And that's what it's sort of trucking out of Jerusalem. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it makes some sense. At least it kind of makes superficial sense. 
even if not immediately, like right at the end of that word, generally speaking, maybe that's what the sub note is getting at. That because I think he does. I mean, he seems to not, I'm just trying to look here. He seems to not move on geographically. Now, that's the other thing, though, that's, um, that can be a little deceiving as we see all these pages, but this can all happen in really short order. So I was thumbing forward to see if there's a clear and evident departure from Jerusalem. He's going back to Jerusalem in 1711. So at some point in time he left. I yeah, uh, I really don't I really don't have a better answer. I think the study note's probably right in a general sense that he leaves Jerusalem and comes back. Yeah, I can't give you anything more specific. Sorry about that. All right. Anything else? Okay. Oh <laughs> thanks. I better not. I'll wait till after it's done. There you guys go. All that green. Okay, so on to 14 then. One Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Uh, the ruler of the Pharisees, probably a, probably a layman and probably a ruler of a synagogue belonging to the Pharisee party. They were watching him carefully. Whenever you see that watching him carefully, it really carries a negative connotation. They're trying to entrap him. And I think that that's also cued up by Luke <laughs> with the next. It's not maybe not quite as clear in English, but and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, as if to say, and what do you know? <laughs> so here it is on the Sabbath. They're watching him. What's that? What's that line out of the latest Mad Max movie where he goes, that's bait. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what's going on, which is really kind of nasty. I mean, they're treating this man as bait. Yeah. It's, so dropsy, he's all swollen up with water. I think it's edema and, uh, is another name for it. Got all this fluid he can't get rid of. So it's also one of those physically obvious uh, kinds of afflictions. Verse 3 Jesus, yeah, and he knows it's a trap because Jesus answers or Jesus responds. Notice how nobody said anything. <laughs> what is he answering? What is he responding to? The obvious trap. So he responds to the nomicos, the experts in the scriptures and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful, is it right to heal on the Sabbath or not? So here you see Jesus calling out the trap and saying, okay, if you were me, what would you do? <laughs> and they don't want to answer that. So they remain silent. Then he took him. He really took him unto himself. I think this is a tender move, and I think this is a detail that Luke adds be, uh, on account of the tenderness. Um, these men who were trying to give the impression as though they were in the service of God, used this poor man as bait. I think this is a subtle allusion to the fact that Jesus takes him unto himself, grasps hold of him. Um, I, I do think that this is loving and affectionate. I think that Jesus is saying to the man through his physical actions that you're not bait to me. Then he took him. 
and healed him and sent him away. And I think that that reading is bolstered by the fact that he sends him away. So the bait's released. Go on about your business. All right. And then he said to them, their bait's gone. They're just sitting there guilty. Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things because they all knew they would. So here's a human being. So he's shown their hypocrisy and their cruelty and all the rest as well. Okay, now, (laughs) heck of a way to start a dinner party. (laughs) Because again, this is on the Sabbath, um, and he's dining at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees where he's been kind enough to set this trap up. So already things are a little hostile there. And I think that that'll explain why Jesus um, goes on to tell the tales he does and speak the way he does. And outside of the context, you might kind of go like, whoa, Jesus is just a little rude here, a little abrasive, a little forward. Yeah, well, the cat's already out of the bag, so to speak, on what their plans and agenda were. So Jesus is going to just take full advantage and give it right back. So verse 7 is a continuation. Again, uh, the break here is kind of nice just to visually cue, but um, can be a little misleading because it's not like this is some separate event in verse 7 and following. It's the same thing. It goes like they're silent. They refuse to answer because they've got egg on their face. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So this You know, what's happening in the house of the ruler of the Pharisees is microcosmic for the whole way of the world. And Jesus' way is entirely different, entirely upside down. So that's what he goes to, he sets about to make clear to them. So they choose the places of honor. It's like, yeah, well, where else would we sit, you know? But he says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast. Now, who said anything about a wedding feast? just out of the blue but who's the bridegroom we know it's our lord and so to what is he referring his kingdom his reign his wedding feast <coughs> not what's going on here at the ruler of the pharisee's house which is really kind of a feast of the wicked <coughs> that has all the trappings of the religious who's who but then jesus here is going to say in effect When you are invited by someone, I wonder who that someone is. Probably a coy reference to himself. To a wedding feast, namely his wedding feast. Do not sit down in a place of honor. Lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. I think Jesus is speaking of himself. As the him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. As if Jesus is saying, in my, in my feast, it is not so. In the earthly feast, the feast of the Pharisees, you grab what honor you can grab. In my feast, in my house, not so. It's the opposite. Take the lowest, and you'll be lifted up. Take the highest, and you'll be cast down. You can see the way of the world and the way of Christ's kingdom here in quite stark contrast. Uh, Worthwhile to note in passing, 
that there are higher and lower places, even in the wedding feast of Jesus. And that's proven by very clear scriptures that talk about rewards in heaven and talk about different, differing um, stewardships and how they've been conducted and how they'll be rewarded. You know, the beauty of um, the doctrine of vocation is that you're, you're sort of graded, so to speak, um, in terms of uh, sanctification um, in respect to the vocation and calling you've been given, in respect to the stewardship you've been given. So in other words, it's not as if like, well, I was a, well, I was an acolyte, so that gives me, okay, well, I was an elder, so that gives, well, I was a congregational president, well, I was an elder, well, I was a pastor, well, I was a district president, as if the Lord's going to be like, whoa, okay. <laughs> Ooh, let me take a look at your resume here in, in greater depth. Very impressive. Now, that's not the, the nature of vocation is that he gives us all our own unique callings. He gives us all our own unique abilities, and he rewards that which he himself works in and through us. And so, again, to him be all glory, but there is this reality of stewardship and higher and lower places. Nonetheless, the attitude of Christians is to be to take the lowest place. Who comes to mind immediately among the Christians as taking the lowest place? And it's almost ridiculous that he does, but he does so genuinely. St. Paul, who is more prolific of an author, of an evangelist and missionary, of a Christian doctrinaire. I mean, he's beaten. Not only is he is master of Christian doctrine, but he's beaten within an inch of his life multiple, multiple times. And he counts himself to be the chief of sinners. He uses himself as, as an object lesson. If even I can be saved, then I know God can save anyone. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing the humility of Paul. So, yeah, I think Paul is an example par excellence of one taking the lowest seat, even though undoubtedly deserving of the Lord to say, come up a little higher, my friend. Okay, verse 10. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, and again, I I think that this is Jesus. When your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So the reversal motif, but the reversal motif, even amongst those who are invited to the wedding feast. St. Paul in Philippians, Vicar and I were touching on this because it comes up as the epistle lesson for Palm Sunday. In Philippians chapter 2, this great section on Christology where he talks about Christ humbling himself in this incredible twofold way to oversimplify a bit, but humbling himself via the incarnation, taking on the form of a servant, and then as a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, which for a Jew, there's just no more humiliating death than a death on a cross because cursed is everyone who hangs from a tree. And those in the Old Testament who hang from a tree are the worst of the worst. Jesus shows his extreme faithfulness and his extreme humility in submitting 
even to that kind of death and that kind of scandal. And he does so in a clear conscience, with no anger toward God, but with simple, humble obedience and faithfulness. Again, from the cross, for my money, the most amazing words are the quotation of Psalm 22, my God, my God. Absolute faith. Absolute faith. Now, what's interesting about St. Paul is after he's, before he's given us this great Christology, which likewise ends with, um, he was humbled that he might be exalted above all and above every name. St. Paul has presupposed this entire teaching with these words, have this mind in yourselves also. So, This is where I think it's just beautiful while keeping justification and sanctification conceptually distinct as they should be, law and gospel distinct as they should be. You really can't understand justification without likewise understanding sanctification. They're one in the same coin, just two different sides distinct, but they're one in the same coin. If you love the crucifixion, then you will want to be conformed into the psychology of the crucified one, the spirituality of the crucified one, you see. You can't say, I love the crucifixion, but I want to live and think and be the exact opposite of that. Do you really love the crucifixion then? (laughs) Nope. So have this mind in yourselves also, I think is a very concrete, straightforward way of teaching exactly these principles that our Lord just wonderfully, beautifully poetically teaches here. Okay, let's pause and see if you can reflect. This is the parable of the wedding feast, one of several parables that have to do with this theme of a wedding feast. Other than the only thing I can think of is, you know, thank God. God is responsible for giving you the fruit of the Spirit. You're just connected in with Jesus and you produce fruit. Otherwise, I'm thinking to myself, this ain't going to happen. my lifetime. So, so, yeah, I'm just thankful that, you know, it says here, he's the author and finisher of. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the only reason you're there is because you're invited by him. You know, so it's not like you can just say, hey, you know, let's merit my way into this. You know, he invites. Yeah. Um, but this is in keeping with verse 24 and this idea of strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be strong enough to not be able. That's the way not be able is uh, colored there with that word. Jesus isn't afraid of talking about the difficulty Obviously, we're justified by grace through faith apart from works, but he's not opposed in the least to talking about the difficulty of what that actually means, holding to that belief, growing in that belief, living in that belief, being conformed into the image of Jesus in this lifetime for the next. That is going to be hard. It's, it's going to be the hardest imaginable thing. And by the way, we're coming up on a section uh, where Jesus is going to, in this same chapter on verse 25, Jesus is really going to pour this out. So uh, under your heading, it'll be the cost of discipleship, which I think skews it a little, but it's fine. But what he's going to say is like, this undertaking isn't for the faint of heart. 
and it's discipleship is to, I mean, there, yeah, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me not go into that. We'll wait, we'll wait a minute. Yeah. Okay. So we've hit the, we've hit the first of his teachings then. And in this very hostile afternoon barbecue at the congregational president's house. Um, on to uh, verse 12, or is there anything hanging out on that section? All right. All right. 12. He said also to the man who had invited him. And this is where, again, if you don't recall the hostilities that have already been poured out, you might just think this is rude. But Jesus is like contrasting. Here's how different your house and your dinner party are with mine. And under no circumstance should we get the idea that this is like, you know, Jesus in writing an article for Better Home and Gardens, you know, this is how to throw a party. I I don't think that this, I mean, this may have some practical application, but I don't think that that's really what he's after. Okay, here's the host. Here's Jesus speaking directly to him. When you give a dinner or a banquet... Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, (laughs) lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Now, this touches on table fellowship, which is a giant theme in Luke and and something that's kind of lost on us a little bit in our culture where we'll pretty much eat with just about anyone, you know. Um, but in that day and age to eat with somebody is effectively to be in fellowship and harmony with them. And, um, so this is pretty, pretty radical, pretty countercultural advice that he's giving or not advice, but teaching that he's giving. Okay. So don't do things for the people around you, lest they repay you. You can hear echoes of Matthew six. They have received their reward. And that's effectively what he's saying here. You've received your reward. Verse 13, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous or the resurrection of the just. And there too is the idea just spelled right out of reward. So it's nice to know that God does not keep a record of our sins, but what he does keep a record of are our good deeds. In fact, so scrupulously that even something so small and trivial as giving a cup of cold water to a little child in his name will by no means lose its reward. Now, what, are, what Jesus is doing right here with this teaching is of the utmost importance for us to grasp, I think, just conceptually in this way, that it's so easy to fall into despair. It's so easy to fall into the nihilism of our age. It's so easy to fall into the, it doesn't matter. Right? It doesn't matter if I do the right thing or the wrong thing. It doesn't matter if I show kindness or not. It's going to have no effect, no pragmatic value. Maybe, maybe at its most blasphemous level, God doesn't see. <laughs> you 
That's the echo throughout the Old Testament for people doing wicked things. God does not see. He's not just. He doesn't care. There's a way that Christians can fall into that via the path of despair. And what Jesus does when he teaches the reward and the recompense in the resurrection is he says not a single thing is going to be lost. Not a single thing is meaningless. Don't buy into the nihilism. Don't buy into the despair. Your heavenly father sees what you do in secret, and he will reward you openly. So I think this is great, great encouragement. Again, how does the world give? I mean, everything's a transaction. Everything's quid pro quo. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Everything's done with, as like a means to some end. Everything's a transaction. Every person's a transaction. And that, in effect, is what's going on here at this feast. Now, not just this feast, all the feasts of the earth. But Jesus' feast isn't like this. He doesn't host in this way. And who does he call? Well, the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, okay? along with the crippled, the lame, the blind, the outcast. Those of no account, those marginalized in the true sense. I know that word's abused in our age. But this is who Christ calls and gathers to his feast, which, again, I think is profound gospel, depending on who you identify as. I mean, even if only spiritually, you identify as one who is spiritually poor, spiritually crippled, spiritually lame, spiritually blind, that Christ is the one inviting you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, so when you give a feast, now he does invite us with this teaching to put ourselves in the position of host, and who should we have an eye out for? The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Why? You will be blessed precisely because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Can you amplify that? The resurrection of the just? Oh, yeah, sure. So... um, So the resurrection as taught by Christ and the apostles is universal. On the last day, the graves are opened and everyone rises in their bodies. That's how universal Christ's death and atonement are. I mean, Paul teaches us very clearly that all are raised in their bodies. This, this, by the way, is a great great proof for the universal atonement over and against um, the limited atonement that only some then why do all rise? It makes no sense. The atonement is universal. The victory over sin is universal. Therefore, the victory over death is universal. Remember, the only reason we die is because of sin. Well, if sin is taken away, death is taken away. And that's a certainty that both of those things have happened. So everyone rises. But those who have rejected Christ and rejected God and his reign rise unto everlasting condemnation. In their bodies, that's the ultimate demise of the lake of fire or hell proper um, from which you don't return is that you go there in your body as a token of Christ's forgiveness of, your, of sins and victory over death. I mean, that bitterness goes with you because you go in your very body. But those who believe in him are raised and are raised righteous on account of his righteousness given to us. And in a sense, 
his righteousness worked in and through us via the renewal of the, of the heart and the right spirit and the being a good tree, bearing good fruit. I mean, that's not to be excluded just because it's conceptually a little difficult. It's not to be excluded. So the resurrection of the just is saying of those who are saved, let's put it in our language, of those who are saved, of those who are just, not only is there sort of judgment number one, which is whether you're in or not, which by the way, isn't that big of a, I mean, surprise for the vast majority of people, you've already died and you already know if you're in or not. (laughs) But then like, let's say, let's just put it in really plain terms if we can. And that would be after the dismissal of the unjust, of the wicked, then the Lord sets about recompensing the righteous and rewarding the righteous. And that, that day is going to be filled with many, many surprises and many, many joys. I mean, again, perfected and free from our ridiculously self-centered and fragile egos, there'll be nothing but rejoicing in the elevation of our neighbors. But I think the glimpse of this is the woman who puts in the two little mites and Jesus stops his disciples and says, look at that. <laughs> like what? You know, and he says that she's given more than any of the others who have given. I mean, they're, they're wrapped in a tiny little nutshell as the whole doctrine of vocation I was talking about a minute ago and the whole doctrine of stewardship. You don't have to have some great high position. You have to, whatever position God has given you, your faithfulness will be rewarded. We don't even know her name. One day we will, but I think that's a foretaste of this sort of secondary judgment, the recompense of the just, where you're going to see people who you are like, I had no idea. And they're going to be glorified and rewarded. And it's just, you're going to rejoice. I mean, it's nothing but a day of rejoicing and celebration. And this is part and parcel of what it means to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I mean, when Jesus is talking this way, this is his quote, the the quote unquote economy of his kingdom is precisely to do those things which have no reward on earth, precisely because they do have a reward in heaven. I mean, think, think concretely to it. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. No, never mind. Let's not go there. We've, we've, we've belabored the point. So, yeah, I think, I think this is, um, yeah, I think that's what it means. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Okay, then verse 15, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. So here we are at the parable of the great banquet proper. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant Notice the singular. So again, I think Jesus is speaking of himself and his father effectively. He sent his servant to say to those who had been invited. Now, a little bit of background will help. And maybe I've mentioned this before, so I'll do it quick. And that's just, okay, 
in the ancient world, like we don't have refrigerators, we don't have caterers. So an invitation goes out like a save the date and you commit at that time. And that's your word and that's your honor and that's your respect for the host. Okay. And then a servant goes out and says, it's ready, come. Okay? And that usually happens weeks later, sometime later. Okay. So that's why he says, say to those who had been invited, the preliminary invite already went out. Now, if we think, if we just kind of cut through the chase here, like the preliminary invite already went out to all of the sons of Abraham of the flesh, to all the Hebrews, to the Jews. The invite has already gone out. The Lord's going to come. He's going to have his feast. Now he sends his servant out, Christ. It's ready. Come. That's where we're at. Come, for everything is now ready, verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. Now, already this is bad form. Already this is impermissible in this culture. This is just on, you know, maybe, maybe death is the excuse. <laughs> okay, or the death of a very near loved one. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Now, this may not be immediately obvious to us, although I think it could be. Do you just go buy a property without even looking at it? This isn't a legit excuse. This isn't, this isn't even real. Okay, There is no field, and it's just a lie, and it's a, and it's a see-through lie. And again, I don't know how popular this is in our culture. I'd have to think about it. Maybe you guys could help me out. But in a Middle Eastern context, there's a way of telling the truth. There's a way of telling a good-natured lie that's a double insult. Okay, so so you say something like, "Oh, I'm really so." No, okay, it's it's yeah. It would be almost like this. Like, I'm so sorry. The dog ate my homework. You know it's a lie, and you know that they know it's a lie, and you don't care, and you're dealing a, a double insult through it. Okay, that's going to become increasingly apparent as we go along that that's what's going on here. So not only are they saying no, but they're saying no in insulting ways. Okay, so verse 19, and another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I mean, a field's expensive. We already saw that guy who sold everything he had to buy a field. I mean, this is expensive stuff. Five yoke of oxen is like a couple of John Deere combines. <laughs> you're talking like, like a lot of money. And I go to examine them. You can go to examine them before you bought them, right? So we've got the same thing here. Not only is it in... Uh, I mean, even if he had to say, hey, I got to go do this, it's a business deal, that would still not be acceptable because he already committed. But the fact that, so the fact that he's declining is the first and the second is that it's an obviously deceitful. There's an economic cost here too, because how many, how many goats did you slaughter for the feast or rams did you slaughter according to the number? So what's uh, of those who RSVP'd? So now they're not coming. Not only is this like a social insult and the feast is going to look small for those who do come, but it's a economic insult too, because that food's just going to go to waste. There's no refrigerators. There's no freezers. It's just 
So you cannot, you cannot be more insulting. All right, the last one's worse. 20. And another said, I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come. <laughs> now, this, this is idiomatic. And uh, Kenneth Bailey, who's kind of an expert on Middle East and Near East cultures, say this is effectively, effectively saying in that culture, in that way of saying, no, I can't come to the party because I'm going to sleep with my wife. I would assume just that comment, you would want to go to the party. Well, I mean, again, you can see the paper thin nature of the excuse. Like, okay. And, but then you can also see how it's insulting because it's like, yeah, well, I don't have to go into why it's insulting. I Yeah. So again, if you're if you're sympathizing with these folks, you're not understanding the parable. You gotta <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is really, this really kind of a key to a number of Jesus' parables that we've seen is he tells parables of disgust. He tells parables of disgust. The point is that um, you're so disgusted, you can hardly believe it. And then obviously, as you connect the dots with who's behaving this way, you want to make sure you're not behaving this way. All right, so verse 21, the servant came and reported these things to his master. The master of the house became angry, obviously, and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city. Now, what city are we talking about? Probably Jerusalem in view. And bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Oh, when did we hear that before? Verse 13. Now, who are these poor and crippled and blind and lame who live within the city, the city that was invited? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks. So the poor and the lame are the outcast who the sort of ruling religious class sees as the despised by God. And the ne'er-do-wells and the not worth bringing because there's no reason to bring them. They can't ever repay. So you can see how this whole thing is crescendoing now. Verse 22, and the servant said, obviously he goes to do it. And he says, sir, what you commanded has been done. And indeed they've come in. So at the Feast of Jesus, it is precisely the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, as we're going to see the tax collectors and sinners, not those who are originally invited. So those seats that they declined to take, how I long to gather you together, but you would not have it, the Lord is going to see are filled with the outcasts. Verse 23, and the master said to the servant, oh yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't get the very last section of 22, which is essential, and still there's room. So they've all come in and still there's room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in. You have to compel people to come in because they're going to be suspicious. 
and who are who are okay if we've done if we've done the upper crust of the Hebrew people, we've done the outcast of the Hebrew people, who's outside the city in the the Gentiles. Yeah, that's what's in view. The Gentiles have to be compelled to come in because it's weird. You know, if a limo just pulled up as you're walking down the street and said, hey, we got a giant party for you to come to, would you go? (laughs) Hey, get in, get in. (laughs) Yeah, right. Run the other way as fast as you could. So they've got to they've got to be compelled to come in, and that's kind of fun too. Because as Gentiles, I think we have to be compelled to come in. You know, this is this religion isn't ours, so to speak. We're outsiders. This is a Hebrew religion. This is Abraham. This is the Old Testament. This is Sinai. This is stuff we all belong. I mean, I don't know unless there's any Hebrew people in here, um, any Jewish people in here. We all belong to other nations. We all belong to other peoples. This isn't our stuff. We're being invited into a feast that isn't ours. Paul uses a different analogy. We're being grafted in into this olive tree, of which we're not. But when you graft in, then we will, in fact, become. Okay. And I love this. So compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Again, God desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Those who reject him are out there. Seats will be taken by other people. God wants a filled banquet. Then he says for 20, in verse 24, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Those were the original invitees who refused to come and their seats were taken. To whom is Jesus telling this parable? <laughs> to the very host who's sitting right there and all the people sitting right there. And the guy who says cluelessly, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Jesus is like, yeah, let me tell you about that and how that's really going to go down. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is a hostile you know, Saturday afternoon barbecue. And Jesus meets hostility with hostility. But he does so. In truth, and if you take St. Paul at his word, which I think we should, even hear our Lord Jesus provoking them to jealousy with the intention of provoking them to jealousy, that, look, tax collectors and Pharisees are entering the kingdom before you. You were invited, and they're coming in before you. The crippled, the lame, the poor, they're coming in before you. The Gentiles are now coming in before you. What's wrong with you? Don't you want to come in too? Okay, so I think that's I think that's where we're at at the uh, at the end of that parable and at the end of that luncheon. Let me let me pause and see if you have any thoughts or if you saw something I didn't see. Any questions? Mm-hmm. Uh, isn't there a? Uh, I think it's Paul maybe who writes and says Christ will not return until the full measure of the. Uh, the um, into the fold or into the kingdom. That tie, I mean, first of all, is that accurate? Is there a verse that says that? And secondly, uh, is that tie with this parable saying until the house is full? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, to answer your question, I think there are verses that speak in the in those ways. And yes, the the father is not delaying for fun. Uh, he wants his house to be filled. There's other dynamics involved, obviously, um, but yeah, that's a that's a chief reason. I think James touches on this in different language, and so does Peter in First Peter. Um, 
and they talk about the patience of God and the long sufferingness of God waiting. And there are parallels drawn to agriculture, farmers waiting for the crops to come in and hints at God waiting in the days of Noah with patience um, that any would repent and get on the ark. <laughs> and they all refuse. I mean, the fact that they're only um, eight people on the ark is not because God only wanted to save eight people. Noah and family are out there preaching to everyone. The fact there's only eight people on the ark is because nobody else believed and or wanted to come. And so, yeah, that, there's that sense of uh, waiting for the banquet hall to be filled and or just waiting for the flood, which is not going to be a flood of water, but a flood of fire. That's, what's, that's what comes next. And that's really what we're waiting for. I mean, if there's an urgency to the gospel, if there's an urgency to um, our, our own, taking our own spiritual lives and spiritual growth seriously, it's that that is the next big event is a deluge of fire and the judgment day. And it's, and it's too late. And what you've done is what you've done, whether that's faith or unbelief. And even if it's faith, it's all right, but your stewardship would be the secondary concern. And that is worth being concerned about. I mean, the scriptures are clear. There's on the one hand, there's no condemnation. On the other hand, we give an account. So, Again, this life and all of those teachings are so important. They take on a gospel flavor for us, particularly in this day and age, because the opposite is that it's meaningless. And you just you're just languishing, waiting for the, you know, I don't know. Life life can start to feel, maybe this is me getting cranky in my old age already, but life can start to feel like you're just waiting for the next disaster to hit. You're just waiting for the next tragedy or the next hole in your roof or uh, <laughs> you know, the next flat tire or whatever the case may be. Uh, so you can, you can get this really like sort of passive, meaningless, languishing thing going on in your soul. And it's bad. It's just, it's just unhealthy because then you start medicating and then you go, oh, how did I fall into such great grievous sin where I medicated and that sin led to other sins and so on and so forth. And it really all has this root of, despair, we've lost sight of the fact that there is a stewardship that's been handed to us. And we just, we're too quick to dismiss that as, oh, that sounds legalistic. Okay, we'll consider the alternative. <laughs> it's disastrous. Okay, it doesn't have to be legalistic, nor does it have to be disastrous. It's this blessed thing that Christ has given us. And this, and again, this kind of freedom of like, look, you can't possibly do all the good that you see to do in a given day. Just do some of it. <laughs> Don't, don't let perfection be uh, what hinders the good, right? Well, I can't get a 10 out of 10 today, so I may as well just get a zero out of 10, you know? Uh, no, just get to it and know that it has meaning and know that it has purpose and know that it has reward and know that the days are short. That's so, Rody, about an observation. Is that you, Lord? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's Chris's cousin, so I come close, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, uh, the way you pointed it out, I never saw this before, but it seems to me that when it says a man once gave a great banquet and invited many, this is like a one time event. It's going to be this or no other banquet. And I never saw that before. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. Well, and then no shock and surprise when on the night before our Savior is betrayed, he institutes that banquet and gives his supper as the new covenant. It's his cup. That is the new covenant. So that is the banquet wine and the banquet feast as it looks this side of his coming. Then when he returns, that same Lord's Supper, which is essentially a communion in God and with God, all of a sudden just flips. It's the same essential thing, but all of a sudden, instead of looking humble and requiring faith, it's glorious and a celebration um, of all the saints and a, cel- and a victory feast of the Lord. This is the fulfillment of uh, Isaiah, and uh, we were just looking, and Joel has a text like this. Um, many, there are others in the Old Testament prophets that talk about the day of the Lord. You'll remember this language being a day of the finest of wines and the fattest of meats on the Mount of the Lord and the Mount of the Lord flowing with honey and its hills flowing with milk and uh, streams of, that were once desert flowing with water and just the super abundance that you see in Revelation 21. So what, what we're seeing in a sense is with the Lord's Supper, with that banquet is sort of the underside, if you will, of that reality, which is fully to come. It's not different than the Lord's Supper. It's the same essential thing, but it does have the flip side, the glory side, as opposed to the humility side, the faith side. So, right, understanding the whole thing as a feast and the New Testament as that feast of his body and his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, that's really where it's all driving. Thank you for that comment. All right. Any uh, anything else we want to want to touch on? Okay. So that takes us, yeah, to the banquet twenty four. Well, why not get started and we'll round this out next week. Just real quick, twenty five. Now, great crowds. So there is a transition. We're not. We're no longer on the Sabbath with the ruler of the Pharisees. Great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life or soul, Sukain, life is probably the more common translation, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, this, he cannot be my disciple, is repeated in 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So again, in many and various ways, Jesus teaches that we are justified by grace through faith apart from works. The same thing St. Paul spells out. But he is also absolutely not shy about talking about the material existential difficulty of actually retaining the faith while the devil, the world, and your sinful nature are attacking you. And one of the chief attacks, we saw this hinted at back in 12, when you give a dinner for a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives. One of the chief difficulties is 
even amongst the moral on earth, family is the highest of all. Okay, Family is the highest commitment. And what Jesus is saying here is that if family is your highest commitment, then you will not be able to be my disciple. And he says that just unapologetically. Why? Because your family is not your God. <laughs> he is. Seems like hate is the wrong word there. Oh, yeah. Well, you can correct the Lord if you want. <laughs> so you bring, yeah, you bring up a good point. So, so hate can be taken in these two ways. It can t- be taken in a soft way as prefer, and it can be taken in a harsh way as detest. Okay. And it has that whole spectrum of meaning. Generally speaking, though, the language of hate in, in our culture, in our context, tends to be an emotional conception. And this, at this time, in this culture, hate, uh, especially used contextually like this, doesn't have emotion involved, or at least not nearly as much as it does for us. We typically express hate as like this deep-seated emotion or disgust. That's not really what hate is. I mean, in this, in this sense, like, you drop a piece of, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're shooting the chicken nugget into the trash can and it falls on the floor, okay? You pick it up and throw it in because you hate the chicken nugget on the floor. Um, it's a decisive action, right, of what's right and what's wrong. And that might, too, sort of give an entry into, in what sense, hate, okay? Now, is Jesus here, I mean, uh, maybe this would be a better way at it real quick. Is Jesus here undermining the fourth commandment, that you honor your father and your mother. No, not in the least. This is an emotional thing. He's not attacking the fourth commandment. But what, is he, what, what he is saying to this crowd that's sort of like following him around like leeches because he's just sort of dribbling out good stuff, and there is he's saying, you all are clueless and you don't get it. And again, his claim is absolute, and it's meant to be shocking. This is why I I frankly don't really like softening it because his claim here is a claim to absolute divinity. That which you would value the absolute highest. And look what it says. I mean, it's not just like, I don't know, what if you didn't like your dad or something that, or your mom? So your own father and mother and wife and children. Okay. So, you know, along with brothers and sisters, and yes, even your own life. We'll talk more about this next week. Um, I'll share with you right now in case I forget my bias. I think the scriptures are, if you think geogra- in, in terms of geography and history, the scriptures are primarily read by pastors. Second to that, and professional clergy persons, second to that, scriptures are read by men. It's almost unthinkable in most cultures around the world and in most of history to think of women reading these scriptures. Okay. The idea of a woman's Bible study is brand new. <laughs> Am I against it? No, it's great. Okay. But what you're going to see in this section, well, we heard it even in this last gospel, who were counted uh, on the mountain. Yeah. 
Okay. So what you're going to see is an, Jesus is going to talk about building a tower. Precisely how many women have built towers in the history of the world? Then Jesus is going to talk about a king going to war with another king. I don't know. Maybe there's a few women who have been in that position, but not many, and it probably didn't go well. What's going on here is a really masculine thing. Now, I think women participate in this dynamic, but I think this is particularly masculine, and especially when viewed biblically as the family is a unit and the male is the head of that unit. And so as it goes for him, it goes for everybody underneath. I know we're not used to thinking about that way because, hey, you know, we vote and our wives vote and our children vote. And sometimes, you know, we have to reinforce in our families that, hey, everybody voted, but it's not a democracy. (laughs) It's going to be this way. okay? Um, And I think that that those dynamics are at play here. So the hating even onto one's own life is something that men are gated to understand easier than women. And that because you, it's easier for us to be principled. It's easier for us to be rational. And we have to understand that if, if we understand our headship and role as males in the family, then we understand that we ourselves are under a head. And that head is preferable to us like white and black, like 100 to zero. So what he says goes. And there's a sense in which we only find freedom as men in particular when we're willing to lose everything. And in fact, when we've already lost everything. Because if Satan can come along to you and say, oh, you love God? Well, how about if I do this and you know, hurt your wife or hurt your father? Are you going to save them or are you going to be faithful to God? Let's say. Let's say it was just like that. What are you going to choose? If you choose mother or father or husband or wife or family. And I I mean, again, there you can see that it does apply to females. But again, I think this particularly masculine in the headship, um, that if Satan can leverage something on you, then you're not in fact free. And the freedom to which Christ is calling you is to have him as your only head, and then you are truly free. So that not only those around you that you might love, but even yourself in your own life. Okay, more, more on that to follow. That, that we're already over time. So uh, wet your taste buds with that one. And obviously, I think women and children and everybody else are included in this. But I do think that this has a particular edge toward men as the head of the family unit. So let's simply uh, close up here with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you guys online for joining. Thanks for the commentary. See you all next week. Thanks, Pastor. Great study, Pastor. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Yep. Thanks.